Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, and welcome to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly show on business and finance. I'm Rachna Schanberg, The Economist's Europe economics correspondent. Boeing's new boss has stepped into one of the world's most difficult jobs. I'll be asking Simon Wright, our industry editor, whether the new CEO can restore the fortunes of the world's biggest aerospace company. And is the dollar being ditched? The Economist's special assignments editor, Matthew Valencia, on countries' attempts to turn their backs on the greenback. Simon, Matthew, welcome to Money Talks. Hello. Hi, Ratchina. And later on in the show, how economists are trying to change the face of the profession. First up, Boeing is in crisis. The airplane manufacturer is trying to salvage its reputation after two crashes involving its 737 MAX jets, which killed 346 people. In December, it announced it would halt the production of the 737 MAX and sacked its chief executive, Dennis Moylenberg. This is the backdrop against which David Calhoun took over as the new boss on January the 13th. He has a tough task ahead of him. Simon, you've been following the goings-on at Boeing for some time. What should Mr Calhoun's priorities be? Well, the first thing he has to do is to sort out the problem with the 737 MAX. It's the problem that's hanging over Boeing. It's been hanging over them since March last year when the uh, planes were grounded after the two crashes, which were linked to this faulty uh, system, flight control system. Dennis Muhlenberg, who was sacked, overpromised about when the plane would be back in the air. Boeing were hoping to have it back in the air in the last quarter of last year sometime, and now it's very unclear when it will be back in the air. In fact, production has uh, halted. Up until that point, Boeing was still producing uh, 42 of the planes a month, which is a reduced rate from where they hoped to be, but they were still making them. And these planes are piling up in parking lots around Seattle. So his task is to sort out this problem which means getting regulators to uh, recertify the MAX and to get it back in the air. That may not happen until the middle of the year. It looks like the recertification will happen in a couple of months, but because of pilot training on uh, simulators and so forth, a lot of the airlines who use the plane haven't put it back in their schedules until sort of March or so, and that could even drift. So that's the main problem that he has to deal with. But that's not Boeing's only problem. Do you think part of the challenge here is also delivering some kind of cultural change? We saw some emails, some staff emails that came out into the open talking about how um, staff were worried that you know the 737 MAX wasn't safe enough, they wouldn't let their families fly on the plane. Is that something that needs to be addressed as well? I think that's absolutely something that has to be addressed. I mean, uh, getting the public back to fly back in these planes may be one of the problems. It looks very bad for Boeing to have these sort of emails flying around, which shows that the uh, employees at Boeing had very little regard for the regulators or it would even seem uh, safety. Boeing has a reputation of being run by bean counters and it used to be run more by engineers who were 
this may have been a fault, but were far more interested in engineering the best plane they could, regardless of cost. And that has swung too far the other way. So I think he has to find some sort of happy medium between the two. Whether he can do that, though, is an open question. And is there anything else that you think should be on his to-do list? Well, Boeing has a number of other problems as well. The 777X, which is a new jet that will be flying soon, that's sort of been slightly delayed. The 787, another long-haul plane, there's a thoughts that it might have to reduce production because orders aren't coming as quickly as they may do. The European regulators are holding up a deal to merge with the commercial airplane arm of Embraer, which is a Brazilian uh, regional jet maker, which is slightly smaller planes. So he has to deal with those problems as well. So I think there's quite a lot on his plate. Matthew, can I bring you in here, given you've been business editor at The Economist? You've seen your fair share of dramatic dismissals, I'm sure. Can bringing in a new CEO make a difference? Well, the short answer is sometimes, but far from always. Jeff Immelt left GE in 2017. John Flannery came in, was the new blood who was supposed to turn things around, and a year later he was out. So, you know, it's far from assured that somebody coming in, even when, you know, they have support across the company, across the board, and, you know, the media is rooting for them as well, is guaranteed to do a good job. So it really just depends on the individual. And Mr Calhoun was the chairman of the board of Boeing before moving to be the CEO, is that right? That's correct. So he's not exactly a fresh face? No, no, but I mean, I think that's to his advantage. I mean, he knows how Boeing works. I think... Boeing probably toyed with bringing in an outsider and Mr Calhoun may only be there for a couple of years before they do decide to either bring in another person, perhaps an outsider. But I think in the circumstances at the moment, having somebody who's familiar with the way the company works is probably quite important. And just to add to that, I think, you know, sometimes there is a temptation at companies to bring in somebody when they think of sort of a fresh face, they're thinking of outsiders and it doesn't always work out. I mean, there are many, many examples of companies that brought somebody in from another industry thinking they could see problems that others couldn't identify and shake things up, but it didn't work out. So, you know, again, it cuts both ways. Boeing is the world's largest aerospace company. To what extent are they too big to fail? Uh, Yeah, I think they probably are. Look, we don't really know what's going to happen next. I suppose there's a small chance that the 737 MAX is never certified to fly again. I mean, one person described to me as trying to fix a hardware problem, the fact that they've put the engines, new engines on the plane that have changed the flying characteristics with software, and that's just something you may not be able to do. Look, if that doesn't happen, the financial consequences for Boeing would be disastrous. What happens then? I mean, people have talked that maybe the government has to bail them out. Maybe Boeing's defence business is split off into a separate operating company. This is all wild speculation, but, uh, you know, yes, I think it is probably too big to fail. But it is, as part of a duopoly, I mean, the only other producer of that scale is Airbus. Customers don't really have that much choice to move elsewhere. No, they have almost no choice at all. I mean, uh, Airbus's order books for this sort of plane stretch long into the future. They're ramping up production, but that's not going to fill the gap. People will have to keep older planes in uh, service longer, which uh, and older planes are more expensive to operate and more polluting, so it doesn't do anybody any good at all. Plenty for Mr Calhoun to be getting on with then. Thank you, Simon. If you're trading across borders, it's likely you'll be invoicing in dollars. Global commerce and finance are heavily dollar-centric, and dollar assets are often seen as a safe haven. But could that be about to change? Sanctions enforced by President Donald Trump's administration have made ditching the dollar an appealing prospect for some countries. Matthew, just how dependent are global trade and finance on the dollar? In a word, hugely. I think something like half of all invoicing of international trade 
is done in dollars. Um, the dollar really is the not quite the only game in town, but far ahead of any other currency when it comes to global trade and payments and sort of international financial assets. And what kind of power does this give America? Huge power. It allows it basically to weaponize the dollar and the American financial system, and it can turn that dominance into foreign policy leverage, and it does that using sanctions. We've seen this recently with Iran, uh, in fact, over several years since the uh, withdrawal of America from the nuclear agreement. But even before that, um, sanctions have been notched up again against Iran, particularly focused on oil uh, banks and shipping. It's really, really hurt the Iranian economy. It's hard to sort of, you know, overstate the impact it's had. And it can be hurt and other economies can be hurt because so many countries trade a lot internationally and... International trade is largely dollar-based. I mean, look at oil and commodities, for instance. And oil has you know, long traditionally been priced in dollars. Uh, many commodities are too. But you're arguing that we might be at an inflection point and the subject of peak dollar has certainly come up from time to time. What's different this time around? What's different is that it's gone just from talk to a little bit more than that. For years and years, other countries have discussed moving away from the dollar. You know, sanctions obviously aren't completely new, but now things have moved on from just talk to uh, a number of countries starting to seriously explore ways to circumvent using the greenback and the US financial system. And, you know, in some cases, countries are doing it in a meaningful way, and others are sort of getting started, it seems. So it just feels like we're at a point now where if you look at the overall numbers, you don't see the dollar falling precipitously in terms of its share of trade payments and financial assets and so on. But there's a sense that, you know, given the heavy use of sanctions in recent years and the concern over that, that other countries are really starting to um, look more seriously at the alternatives. And so is it the countries that have been at the receiving end of the sanctions that have been most active in this area, in the search for dollar alternatives? It's certainly been some of those countries, but others as well. It's interesting. So one country, for instance, that's done a lot is Russia. Russia has been subject to US sanctions over the annexation of Crimea and um, other things. And Russia has gone further than any other country in de-dollarizing the economy in a variety of ways. China has been doing more. And we've also seen um, European allies looking at doing more of this as well. So um, several large European countries, including France, Germany and uh, the UK, have come up with a mechanism called Instex, which is all about trying to allow European companies to keep trading with Iran. And this is something that the Trump administration is not terribly happy with. But it goes to show how widespread this sort of um, search for an alternative to the dollar and the US banking system is. What are the other alternatives that are being floated, Matthew? You've mentioned Instex and Russia sort of diversifying, if you like, away from the dollar. What are the Chinese doing? One thing is they have this um, payments network called SIPS, C-I-P-S. It's not yet an alternative to the SWIFT international interbank payments network, but it could be one day. SWIFT is based in Europe, but is in many ways, it's sort of an American-led initiative, and it's um, an interbank messaging system, the lifeblood of cross-border banking. And there are various efforts afoot, including involving China, to explore alternatives to that. China's also looking at digital currencies as well. The Central Bank of China is 
reported to be working on its own digital currency, which, you know, there have been reports that it might it might um, announce that sometime this year, but um, nothing so far. But, you know, digital currencies are another area where one can imagine countries, you know, hoping to sort of regain the initiative, the financial initiative, so to speak. What do you think about the, um, the official currencies? So when the euro was set up, 20 years ago, a small part of the motivation was to challenge the dollar's exorbitant privilege. The Chinese were talking about internationalizing the renminbi. Might these gain as the dollar loses clout? There are many in Europe and China who hope so. The incoming European Commission under Ursula von der Leyen has made boosting the role of the euro a priority. And the European Central Bank itself has sort of become more involved in that effort than in the past. But the euro has... I mean, it's struggled a bit. On some measures, it's sort of slipped behind the dollar rather than been catching up. And part of the problem is there are a number of, sort of structural and governance issues with the euro, including, for instance, you know, the lack of a banking union. There are a lot of things that need to be sorted out. And, you know, until that happens, it's hard to see the euro catching up and closing the gap much. With the um, the Chinese currency, the yuan, a few years ago, there were predictions that it would rival or overtake the dollar as a global reserve currency. But then there was a stock market crash in China and capital controls were titled and that that set it back somewhat. And I think its share of global payments is still only something like a couple of percent. So the yuan too has a long way to go. So the shift away from the dollar would clearly be very dramatic. How quickly would you expect this to happen? It's going to take time. As I said, the dollar is holding up on most measures and still a long way ahead of other currencies. It slipped in um, central bank reserves from around 70% to something like 60 over the past decade, decade and a half. So on some measures, it is losing quite a lot of ground. But, you know, it has very strong network effects. And, you know, there's still a lot of people out there a lot in the market who really want to trade in the dollar and don't trust the other currencies. So I think it's going to take time. But we may, um, as I was saying earlier, be seeing the beginning of more of a shift towards some of these other currencies. Um, you know, the timing is difficult to predict. And just because a currency is losing share doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to lose its status as the sort of global leader. But I guess all we can say is, you know, when it does start to happen, it can happen quickly. I take the point that this is not going to happen tomorrow. But what's your bet on what the next reserve currency will be? Will it be a single currency or are we looking at a so-called multipolar world of several reserve currencies? I think we're probably more likely looking at the sort of multi-currency system, multipolar world I mean, clearly the euro and the yuan are the two other currencies that are being most closely watched. And at this point, I don't see any sort of clear reason to think that, you know, one will move ahead much more quickly than the other. So we may we may move from a sort of kind of unipolar currency world to three or more. And of course, you know, then we have digital currencies as well to contend with. So no reason just yet to start dumping dollars? Uh, no, hold on to them for now. Matthew, thank you very much. And to find out more about the up-and-coming alternatives to the dollar, read Matthew's piece in the next issue of The Economist. Try a subscription. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Close your eyes and picture an economist. Chances are you're thinking of a white man. The profession has been dominated by them for centuries. In 2018, a report by the American Economics Association found that black, Hispanic and Native American students in the United States were less likely to complete degrees in economics than in any other subject. But now, members of the field are pushing for change. Samaya Keynes is The Economist's trade and globalisation editor. There have been this kind of spate of studies, both of of academic economists and also those working in the federal government. There's a bit of a conversation in in Europe as well, um, but the conversation I've been focusing on is is really happening in America. Last year, there was this big survey of economists that showed essentially that women and, and minorities had experienced a disproportionately high rate of harassment and discrimination. And so what's been happening is really high profile discussions at the American Economic Association. That's the kind of the professional body of economists in the US. In January, on January 3rd to 5th, I was in San Diego for their annual meeting. There's thousands and thousands of economists all congregating together. There were a lot of panels about diversity in the profession. There was one on women in the profession. There was one on black women in the profession. And there was one called How Can Economists Solve Their Race Problems? That was introduced by Janet Yellen, who is now the head of the AEA. Let me emphasize that our focus is not on whether there is a race problem in economics. That's been abundantly documented. Statistics compiled by the Committee on the Status of Minority Groups in the Economics Profession show that minorities are significantly underrepresented. They reveal little or no progress in recent decades. This conversation on diversity has really been going on for a couple of years, I think. And this year, it was the issue of race that got its moment. And and partly that was actually a response to how the conversations had gone so far. Bonia Washington of, of Yale University, who led the discussion after Janet Yellen spoke, and she made the point that last year, the panel women consisted of all white women. This panel was put together in part in reaction to the panel on Uh, How can economics solve its gender problem last year that didn't seem to recognize that women of color are women in the profession as well? A few things really struck me about this conversation. Most obviously, there were some really powerful stories about the constraints that the profession had imposed on people. Someone who has later been an editor of articles I have published, has likely reviewed several pieces that I have written, called me in San Diego, called me boy. My advice is do not call anyone in the profession who is an adult um, by a child, and particularly do not call uh, anyone who is an African-American a boy or a girl. I, I did work on immigration, and I find it intellectually uh, stimulating and incredibly important and useful. But my comparative advantage is doing work on indigenous peoples. 
doing work on Pacific Islanders, doing work on American Indians, because I know about these institutions, and I know about the really unique institutions that exist and have these really cool identification properties that uh, you know allow us to do things that other people who aren't exposed to this uh, don't know about or will take years to learn about. And so I had to sort of put on hold my productivity uh, for a couple of years because I needed to be taken seriously as an economist and not as a race economist. The first of those was Trayvon Logan from Ohio State University, and the second one was Randall Key from UCLA. A theme that came up repeatedly in the conference was about the relationship between economists, so who they are, and the economics that they do. One of the critiques that was heard was this idea that studying issues of, of race or, or gender was, was somehow not as serious as other topics. And that had been a, a challenge for people who were interested in those areas. Um, now, no one would say in public that issues of race or, or gender are, are not serious. And the, the kind of obviously lots of very high profile economists who study those things, but it's kind of more of a, uh, a mindset that, you know, if you're seen as a race economist, then you're not taken as seriously. There was also this idea that actually economists were getting some things wrong and that they were lacking in serious theoretical approaches to issues of race in ways that were behind other social sciences. Ibonia Washington, who's at Yale University, she asked whether economics needed to have race as its own field. And the panel seemed to agree. And that included Cecilia Conrad, who's at Pomona College. Trying to get something published that concludes that race matters means subjecting yourself to a much higher level of scrutiny than accords to many economic papers. So there is a real necessity, if we're going to do this right, to have economics really embrace that diversity means not bringing people with darker skin who use exactly the same models and ask exactly the same questions and reach the same conclusions. Embracing diversity means opening up to the kinds of new questions and new ways of seeing the world that will eventually help to improve economic science. So what did you make of what the panelists had to say? So I think it's really important to say that these complaints have been there for a very long time, for, for decades, in fact. What's different now, over the past couple of years, relative to, say, the past 10 or 15 years, is that you have some very, very senior members of the profession giving this kind of discussion uh, a platform. And it, and it also looks like the conversation is broadening. So last year, there was a lot of, of talk about gender. And so it's great to see this broaden out to other dimensions of diversity. And I think really at the heart of it all is, is, is the same complaint, which is that there is a group of insiders who are inadvertently or not shutting out people who don't look like them and that means essentially shutting out people who might not have had the same life experiences as them and, and so perhaps might not think like them either and that has kind of artificially narrowed the kinds of ideas being discussed or the focus of research. And do you think the profession will become more diverse? Maybe. There's certainly a lot of activity right now. There are a lot of efforts at you know, introducing best practices for departments in terms of recruitment or, or culture. 
There was one study that actually measured what goes on in economic seminars to try and quantify one complaint that, that the culture is very hostile to people. But there was another paper presented that looked at the history of, of this kind of movement for diversity in the profession and made the point that there was a different sort of move in the 1970s and it looked like some progress was made but once the public pressure subsided the kind of the momentum stalled and the point from that paper is that it's kind of not enough for there to be senior leadership saying things because that senior leadership can change the pressure can subside and what you really need is is to change the institutions so that any change is sustainable so that the kind of frameworks become more inclusive i am a bit skeptical that those kinds of critiques are going to generate any kind of meaningful change in the short run and that's just because at the senior levels of the profession i think a lot of economists think that they have a very good idea of what looks like good economics research and those ideas are drilled into people at a very early stage they're very hard to change and so even if we do see changes as a result of all of this then they're going to be very very slow thanks very much samaya And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Before you go, please don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Rachna Shanbog, and in London, this is The Economist. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Listen. 